Well, good morning. We're going to go ahead and continue our study in the Olivet Discourse as part of our larger view of eschatology and how I think the things that are described in Scripture ultimately will pan out here in, in space and time. So um, we uh, mentioned last time as we began this study on the Olivet Discourse that this uh, this discourse really takes us in a somewhat truncated fashion um, into the details that really find full expression in the book of Revelation, or fuller expression in the book of Revelation. Uh, there are still things in that revelation, that unveiling about what is coming, that we don't know all the answers to, but by and large, what is in view in the book of Revelation is what is in view for the majority of the, uh, well, actually the entirety of Matthew 24. Uh, which is to say that Matthew 24 deals with the 70th week of Daniel, like the book of Revelation does from chapter 6 on. And so um, we mentioned last time that Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 give us three accounts of this same teaching. And by and large, they follow along pretty similarly throughout. There is uh, Mark's style is much more brief and, and succinct than that, and so it's not quite as long as Matthew 24's account. Luke 21 is also interesting because uh, one of the questions that the disciples ask that precipitates this teaching uh, is not answered in, uh, is not recorded. The answer to that question is not recorded in Matthew 24 or Mark 13, and that is the question of what is the sign of the coming destruction of the temple that Jesus spoke about. <clears throat> you might recall how the disciples were impressed with the temple, this beautiful structure. But Jesus said, don't be too impressed, because ultimately, there's not going to be one stone left upon another. It's going to be destroyed. And so they ask, well, what, what is the sign of this? When will this be? And then they ask him about the signs of the end and of his coming. And so these questions, again, form the basis of Jesus' uh, Olivet Discourse. It is an answer to these questions. Now, just to finish that thought, Luke 21, verses 20 through 24, give us the answer to the first question. When will these things be? Jesus describes the surrounding of Jerusalem and its ultimate destruction, including the temple, that takes place in 70 AD under Titus Vespasian. The other two accounts of the Olivet Discourse don't include that information. They just go on to answer, uh, record Jesus' answer to the other question, the idea of uh, his second coming and the end of the age in that. Again, we kind of said it might be splitting hairs a little bit to uh, say, are there three questions or two questions that were ultimately asked? I tend to think there were three, but it's not really that big of a deal. The point is that Jesus answers all of them between these three accounts. So we have the Jesus answer in these three accounts ultimately to all of those questions. So we got through chapter 24, verse 5 yesterday. And in answering the question about the signs of his coming and of the end of the age, the very first thing that he stepped out and spoke of was the uh, the intense deception that was going to take place in those last days. And that becomes the premier or the first uh, element that Jesus points to as a descriptor of the last days. And so we spent time on that yesterday, just talking about that. So uh, as usual, if you have not heard the previous teaching on this, we'll invite you to go ahead and do that. And then I'm going to go ahead and move on, looking uh, at verses 6 um, uh, through probably verse 14 here today. But let's go ahead and read verse 6 through 14. So after Jesus says in verse 5 that many will come claiming to be Christ and will deceive many, he says, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. 
Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. And then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nations. And then the end will come. So, uh, and then he begins to move into later, uh, the next thing he begins to talk about would be the point at which what we would typically call the Great Tribulation begins. So this period of time that Jesus talks about leading up to um, the midway point of the Tribulation is a time in and of itself of tremendous tribulation. There is uh, There are very uh, marked things that he speaks to here. Now, there's a couple of things I'd like to interject at this point. Um in reading verses 6 on, as we just did, we came across those elements of the last days, literally the the, the, the elements of, of the last things that happened prior to the coming of Christ to establish his kingdom, and we saw a description of things that we generally think of when we think about the second coming of Christ, uh, judgments, famines, the earth being struck, and these kinds of things. This is something that Jesus speaks about in Matthew 24, and John expands on in Revelation chapter 6. So I'm going to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 6. We'll come back here to uh, Matthew 24 in a moment. But in Revelation chapter 6, we see a, um, um, this same, these same elements spoken of, but they are connected with the idea of the seals on a scroll that is that each one successively are broken open by the Lamb. Just by way of some quick review, if you've been following us on our Sunday morning Revelation series, uh, then this will be familiar ground for you. If not, then this will give you a place to sort of connect the dots here. In chapter 5 of Revelation, we see uh, John is in the throne room, and there is a scroll that is in the hand of the Father who is sitting on the throne. And John begins to weep because a call goes forth to asking who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals, and no one can answer because nobody is worthy. And John begins to weep because no one is able to open the scroll. Now, there is some debate about what the scroll is. It, uh, is it um, the rest of the prophecy of the book of Revelation? Is it a title deed for the earth? Uh, there's a number of different uh, ideas of what this scroll may represent. Um, we do know, at the very least, uh, it seems clear, based on what follows in chapter 6 and the rest of the book, that the scroll seems to, uh, at the very least, represent uh, the coming judgment and rectifying of the conditions of the rebellious, sinful um, earth and, and, its, and its inhabitants ultimately being judged. John weeps because if nobody can open the scroll, then maybe this will end up going on indefinitely and there will be no end to the evil, the wickedness, and all those kinds of things. So that may be one of the things in view. I think that's at least one of the things that's in view. So, uh, John is weeping, but then the lamb comes forth and takes the scroll from the father's hand, and he begins to break the seals. Now, by way of some uh, theological interjection here in regard to questions like when does the tribulation period start? What is the marking point of the tribulation and those kinds of things? These, as we've mentioned before, are points of debate and discussion among believers uh, who hold different views on things like the timing of the rapture and that. Uh, my view, as I've said before, is that the, the rapture of the church happens prior to the point we're looking at in Revelation right now, and, and which would mean also prior to the time that Jesus is describing in Matthew 24. That will be an important point we'll come back to in just a moment as well. But in the seals, as they begin to open, um, 
Some see, well, let me describe the seals first. Uh, as we look at the first seal, we see a rider on a white horse. This is where the four horsemen of the apocalypse come from. We see four horses in these first four seals. The first one is a rider on a white horse who has a bow who goes forth conquering and to conquer. Now, I'll invite you to read chapter six in its fullness, but I'm going to kind of skim a little bit for time's sake this morning. Uh, but it's always good to go back and read these passages uh, fully uh, for yourself. So, But the summation of the first seal is that there's this rider on the white horse. Now, some see this as being Christ. However, uh, most commentators, and I would agree with this, that uh, in reading this, this is not Christ uh, for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons is that the description of him is one that is very different from the descriptions of Christ when he appears on a horse and those kinds of things. Jesus is always described as having a sword and those kinds of uh, that kind of thing. He's got a sword. Um, he is um, he is described differently than this. This particular rider has a bow, but there's no mention of arrows or anything. So what tends to be in view here is that this is the Antichrist being uh, let loose to go ahead and to begin the work that he's going to begin in misleading the world to come together against Christ at his return. The bow without arrows would seem to imply that he's conquering, but through a sort of peaceful means, through maybe uh, uh, persuasion rather than through military. Now, when we connect the overall, or when we draw the overall picture of Antichrist, we don't just go to the book of Revelation. We actually also go to places like the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 7 or chapter 11 uh, and 10 even, I think, as I recall. But the uh, the description of him is one of a conqueror as well. There will be military exploits under the hand of Antichrist, but by and large, he seems to persuade the world to come together. Now, in Revelation 13, when we look more at Antichrist, we'll see some of the uh, powers of persuasion that he has and some of the tools that he's got in his toolbox in order to persuade the world to follow him. But this is the first seal. This one, a crown is given to him like a victor's kind of a crown. In other words, he is victorious in conquering, albeit through peaceful means, by and large, the world. Uh, I will say this before we move on, that when it comes to the Antichrist, he will accomplish through peaceful, quote-unquote, means what many conquerors have sought to accomplish militarily. He will actually unite the world behind him because they will see him literally as a god, somebody who can stand up to Christ when he comes back. Um, typically, there have been military exploits on the parts of the Alexanders and the Hitlers and such of the world in history uh, who are bent on global domination. Nowadays, we seem to be moving that way through peaceful means, and the Antichrist will come in and ultimately bring the world together, um, primarily through diplomatic, persuasive kinds of means and those sorts of things. So that's the first seal, which, by the way, I would say coincides with this idea of deception that Jesus starts with, his description of the last days with. Uh, Satan uh, will empower the Antichrist and the Antichrist and the false prophet along with him. Again, we'll read about them in Revelation 13. They are the ultimate example of deception leading the world away from the true God. Even the Antichrist himself, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, will actually declare himself to be God and demand to be worshipped. So the idea of deception, like Jesus speaks about, certainly fits into the idea of that first seal. You'll notice again, Jesus went on to speak about the idea of uh, of war and that kind of thing, nations rising against nations and wars and such. The second seal, we see this second horse, a fiery red one, coming out and was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and the people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. 
And so war comes next, conflict among the nations. This would also be indicative of the last days. It may very well be that Antichrist finds a way to sort of end those skirmishes, and that becomes one of the reasons why the world rallies around him. But as Jesus is describing in Matthew 24, these elements, we see John describing them and connecting them with the seals that are broken uh, in, in the day when that finally happens. The third seal uh, speaks of famine. He opens the third seal, and he uh, saw uh, the third living creature say, come and see, and he saw, he saw a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales uh, in which he was weighing out the idea of, 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 of different valuable things in great scarcity, things like uh, barley and wine and, 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 and wheat and such. Um, you know, a bag of gold essentially buying a loaf of bread sort of uh, picture. And so famine follows there as well. Um, we see on the fourth seal that is opened, uh, the living creature saying, come and see, and now a pale horse comes into view, and death and Hades followed him, and the power is given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Uh, famine continuing, war continuing in that, but often can, uh, can, uh, connected with this is the idea of pestilence and disease coming as well, the idea of the pale horse. And so um, as Jesus describes these things, here we see John very categorically describing them in connection with the seals. Now, in regard to the question of when does the tribulation period start, when does that last seven-year period begin? Well, Daniel tells us in Daniel chapter 9 that this uh, 70th week in the prophecy that he's given, uh, I'll encourage you to read Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. We will come to that as we get to the discussion on Antichrist and these things. Um, but you can go ahead and read it now. It's always good to be familiar and re-familiar and very familiar with these passages. So um, when the Antichrist comes on the scene that, and he signs a peace covenant with Israel, that marks the beginning of the 70th week. Um, the events that take place in the first half of the week are what are being described in these opening seals because the first seal is the Antichrist coming on the scene. Wars, famine, pestilence, um, you know, those kinds of things. These follow in that first three and a half years. However, by the midway point, it would seem like he has sort of gotten these things under control and he is now beginning to be followed and mass and even worshiped. Uh, again, by the midway point, the, the event that takes place that marks the midway point of that seven-year tribulation period is this image in the holy place spoken of by Daniel the prophet. We've mentioned this uh, in, in recent podcasts talking about the abomination of desolation. Um, so that is yet coming in perspective to what Jesus is describing so far and what the book of Revelation is describing in concert with that. Now the next seals go on. There's the martyrs who, who died during the tribulation period. There's also then the cosmic disturbances that take place. Uh, again, in Matthew 24, Jesus goes on, and we'll go back at this point to Matthew 24, and he talks about the betrayal of others, he talks about kingdoms against kingdoms, and all those kinds of things, um, and it, as, the, uh, as the passage continues to make its way on, uh, there's description of earthquakes and those kinds of things. Later on in Matthew 24, we'll see the, uh, the stars and the sun and all these kinds of things mentioned as well, and so... Um, in that final, in that sixth seal that is broken, we see those cosmic disturbances taking place. The seventh seal then gives way to the seven trumpets that are blown, and in those judgments, we see a third of the earth and its population and the waters and the vegetation all struck. 
And then the seventh trumpet gives way to finally now this third woe, this final uh, announcement that the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and then the bold judgments come and finish wiping out the earth. And that culminates in Christ's return and a world that is now ripe with rebellion under behind Antichrist coming against him, trying to stop him. Uh, you can read about that in Revelation 19. Psalm 2 makes reference to this. These are things we'll continue to uh, that we will come to as we continue through our eschatology series. But in Matthew 24, here now in, in these verses 6 through 14, this is now what's in view, these seals being broken. The question of, um, of uh, we spoke about when does the tribulation start? It starts with the arrival of Antichrist, the breaking of the first seal. Another question in connection with that is how much of this period of time is considered the wrath of God, Okay. Uh, this has to do with issues of the timing of the rapture and those kinds of things. This is where these discussions come up. For many, they don't really worry too much about what the whole thing seems like the wrath, or maybe there's a very specific point later uh, when the wrath of God, maybe the vile judgments and those kinds of things, the, the bold judgments. Um, I would say that on the one hand, we shouldn't be fighting and dividing over these questions, but for the sake of discussing them, uh, my view would be that the tribulation period, the wrath of God, I would equate with the entire tribulation period, and here's why. Um, the things that we see happening on the earth are troublesome. Wars, rumors of wars, famine, pestilence, and such. Antichrist coming on the scene. That's not a good thing, right? Well, when these seals are broken and these things begin to unfold upon the earth and get the ball rolling toward its ultimate judgment, the question that I think, uh, or the the, um, the the event or the point that I would say really kind of uh, makes the case for the wrath of God starting at the beginning of that seven-year period with the breaking of the first seal, I think the point, uh, the way that point really is made that this becomes the beginning of the tribulation period and the wrath of God um, is that it is Jesus who is breaking the seals. The Antichrist is not breaking the seals. Mankind is not breaking the seals. Um, as a matter of fact, the call to bring a finality to the wickedness and rebellion of the earth that follows the breaking of these seals is what John is weeping over. This is never going to end. There's no one worthy to break the scroll, so therefore these, this, the world's going to continue on like it has. Well, that's, that's terrible. That's, that's worthy of John weeping over it. But the Lamb takes the scroll, Jesus takes the scroll, and he begins to break the seals. And that begins the process now that ultimately culminates in the judgment, that um, uh, the, the, the bold judgments and the return of Christ. So I think the wrath of God actually begins with the breaking of that first seal. This is now God, Jesus himself, opening the way for these succeeding things to begin to start happening on the earth. If he doesn't break that first seal, and this, of course, again, is the point of why John is weeping, if no one can break that seal, then it doesn't happen. But the fact that Jesus does break the seal means now it begins to happen. I just think that the responsibility or the, uh, I don't want to put this, the, the point of the wrath of God beginning really falls upon the shoulders of Jesus at that moment when he breaks that first seal. So that is why I tend to think that the, um, that the entire seven-year period could be called the wrath of God, although very specifically we see his wrath in full measure uh, when the bold judgments happen. Now here's another element I, brought, I wanted to bring up. Um, I mentioned how the church by Revelation 6 is gone. Uh, 
which means that the church by, by the time that Jesus is describing in Matthew 24 is also gone. Here's another point that I want to bring up, and I think it helps us to understand how to interpret Matthew 24. Uh, and that is that the church and the rapture are not at all in view in Matthew 24. Now, that may sound like a shocking statement, considering some of the verses that, um, that are in Matthew 24, uh, namely uh, verses uh, toward the end of the chapter, speaking about no one knows the day or the hour and that kind of thing. One, in the, uh, one will be working, one will be left, one will be taken, those kinds of things. We're going to get there and describe those in more detail as we make our way through this passage. But my, uh, my position is, is that the church and the rapture are not at all in view in Matthew 24. Um, because, number one, uh, the church has not been born yet. Um, matter of fact, the idea of the church, the blending together of Jews and Gentiles into a new body, a mystery as Paul calls it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, um, this is something that will not happen till after the resurrection and on the day of Pentecost. And some even argue not even on Acts chapter 2, but actually in Acts chapter 9 um, or 10 even, you know, I suppose when Cornelius and his family come. But I, regardless of which one of those positions you might hold as far as the birth date of the church, it's clear that the church is not around in Matthew 24. Jesus has come first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he is speaking in a very Israel-centric way throughout his ministry, and very much so when it comes to Matthew 24. Now, when we understand eschatology, I I believe that when we have a, a proper understanding of eschatology, we recognize that there are different groups in view in the last days. There are the Jews, who are God's chosen people, to whom he will fulfill his promises, ultimately crescendoing in the millennial kingdom, something promised and spoken of in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, reaches its fulfillment in uh, in, in Revelation 20 with the millennium. Um, so we see the Jews who come to believe. We also see an unbelieving world, those who are lost, those who will be judged, those who reject God and curse him while this is all going on. We also see a body of believers that come to faith during the tribulation period who are non-Jews. These are just people in the world, Gentiles, who come to faith, whether it's through the testimony of the 144,000, whether it's through the testimony of the two witnesses, whether it's even through the, the angels, as it spoke of in, uh, uh, in, in Revelation 14, that are flying through the earth, uh, one with the everlasting gospel, others declare, uh, another declaring the, uh, the fall of Babylon, and yet another one warning against taking the mark of the beast and that kind of thing. So there are what we would call tribulation saints, those who become followers of Christ during the tribulation period. And then there's the fourth group of people, which is actually the first group of people that I uh, would mention in regard to, uh, uh, well, because they are the ones who are raptured away before the tribulation period. And so um, there are these four groups that, not eight, but four groups that um, that uh, that really are in view during the tribulation period and just before the tribulation period. Um, The rapture of the church removes believers who have come to Christ prior to the beginning of the tribulation period, and those who get saved afterward um, uh, are are what we, again, would call tribulation saints. They are sanctified, set apart, saved, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, but it is after the rapture of the church in a linear time-based kind of uh, sense of things. So that being said, the church as we typically would define it, is raptured prior to the events we're reading about. 
Now, that's important for us to understand, because if we try to insert the church into Matthew 24, we run into some issues, not the least of which, um, and for any of you who are post-tribbers out there, this, of course, would be a, a great thing from your perspective, right? But if, if we consider when, G, if Jesus were speaking of the church in regard to the rapture in this discussion, it would fit at the end of the tribulation period. That rapture would happen then if we are looking at this passage and saying, oh, that's the church, that's the rapture, and that kind of thing. Well, then it happens at the end of the tribulation, certainly past the midway point, but I would argue um, even at the, at the end of the tribulation. So, um, so to see the church in here is problematic. Uh, number one, because they would have had no understanding of that being the church. Uh, secondly, the Jewish flavor of this passage he will speak of things like, you know, um, pray that your uh, your escape doesn't happen need to happen on the Sabbath day. He'll speak of the abomination of desolation, uh, and starting in verse fifteen, uh, next time we're together, in regard to uh, an event to be looking for. Well, these these things don't mean anything to Gentiles, but they are very Jewish in their focus. Um, I would argue that um, we need to have a clear understanding of the distinctions of these different groups that are in view and therefore have a better understanding of what's happening in Matthew 24. I would again put forth that the church is not at all in view in Matthew 24, uh, but only Israel uh, ultimately is really in view. So that being, or Israel is the main focus of that, but the church itself is not in view during this. So that being said, that's where I'm coming from on that. Now you may have questions about that, and you may want to push back on that a little bit. I welcome that. It's good for us to hash these things out and spend time looking at them. But let me encourage you to read the passage, Matthew 24 again, and uh, and and consider it the possibility through the lens of what I just described, and it will begin to make a lot more sense uh, when we do it that way. So anyway, um, that being said, I'm going to stop there for today, but next time we'll begin to look, oh, I guess I'll make mention here too. Um, these last few verses in Matthew 24, uh, in 11, he again speaks about the idea of false prophets rising up and deceiving many. <coughs> and he, he points out a few last things here that I'll, I'll mention. Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. The world that we're describing is one where the church has been removed, and therefore the indwelling influence of the Holy Spirit through the church in that time will no longer be on the earth. Um, we currently, as believers in this day, followers of Christ, have an influence as the Holy Spirit works through us, a sort of restraining influence, to borrow from Paul, uh, in First uh, Thessalonians four thirteen through eighteen, we have a, a restraining for uh, power by virtue of the Holy Spirit indwelling us in the world in which we live right now. But the time we're describing here is a time when the church will be gone. There will be believers who indwell by the Holy Spirit, but this entity, the church, will all of a sudden have disappeared, and the world will sort of the floodgates of wickedness will begin to pour at that point. And this is the world that the Antichrist will be rallying people together behind him, and there will be a small pocket of resistance among believers during that time. But the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. That is the description of one who is saved, one who endures to the end. Uh, I'm often fond of quoting um, um, uh, Walter Martin, who was quoting John Calvin, uh, and um, uh, I'm not a Calvinist, but I do appreciate uh, this particular perspective um, where uh, I remember Walter Martin quoting him and saying, you know, what is, uh, quoting Calvin saying, 
what is the evidence of the perseverance of the saints, but that the but the fact that the saints do in fact persevere. And so uh, the love of many will grow cold. However, those who endure to the end or those who are saved shall endure to the end, ultimately, is what I think is in view. And then lastly, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Uh, Variously here, Mark, Luke, this gospel, this gospel of the kingdom, uh, will be preached. The gospel of the kingdom, of course, would refer to the millennial kingdom that is soon coming, and the idea of being prepared for the coming of the Lord. Now, of course, we could speak of the kingdom of heaven as well, right? Because there is an ultimate judgment that will separate those who are lost and will not enter that kingdom of eternity with God in his presence forever and those who will. And so the idea of um, the gospel being preached, uh, the gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ, the gospel that ultimately uh, is the basis and foundation of this kingdom that will be established and also certainly the, the basis of our relationship with God in eternity as well. Not to muddy those things, I understand there are distinctions when we talk about the kingdom. It's a very present on earth kind of thing when it happens in the thousand years. But ultimately, in a very, very real sense, those who enter the millennial kingdom uh, are those who are saved and will therefore also enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who are born during the millennial kingdom, again, we'll talk more about this. Uh, Actually, I might commend you to listen to a couple of our podcasts we've done on the millennium. We've talked a little bit about this already. We'll do it again as we make our way through this eschatology study. But um, there will be those born in the millennium who will have a choice. If they're going to ally themselves with Satan and his final assault upon the saints in Jerusalem, or whether they will align themselves with Christ himself and, and ultimately stand victorious because of his victory over Satan and sin and death. And so that being said, more on those things to come. But uh, my hope is that as we're making our way through Matthew 24, this passage will become more understandable and it will help us gain a sense of, of, of really what much of the book of Revelation points to. Uh, so that being said, um, Father, thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us these opportunities to study. And we pray that as we spend time studying, we'll become more uh, uh, well-versed in, uh, in, in what's coming and to recognize these things. Um, and Father, we just pray that it would also motivate us to live each day in the knowledge that Jesus may be coming for us even today. And so we want to have our hands on the plow. We want to be looking up uh, for his coming, but at the same time, we want to be about his business until he does. So put it into our hearts to live with that sense of expectancy, of of expectation, knowing that he's coming and his coming is right at the door. So we love you, we thank you and praise you and bless you for all that you have unfolded uh, before our eyes and we will one day actually see, um, albeit I believe from heaven's perspective, from heaven's position, but we thank you that these are the things that are coming. And even as Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never pass away. And so we know with assurance that these things are coming. Help us to respond accordingly. Thank you, Father. We love you and praise you and ask these things in Jesus' name.